I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew. This morning as we continue on our almost three year journey through the Gospel of Matthew, understanding the King, the Kingdom, and how to live in the Kingdom, Kingdom living. We can't take our eyes off of this central figure that Matthew keeps putting before us. This is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this book is really all about Him. And this morning we're in Matthew 27, and it's almost at the end of Matthew's scroll, at the end of our books here, and it's the second to last chapter. The title of the message this morning is Striped Savior, Striped Savior, in Matthew 27. And the verses that will be our text this morning will be Matthew 27 and verses 27 through 31. Would you please follow along with me in the reading of the Word of God? Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Thus says the Word of God. Would you pray with me this morning? By faith we have looked upon the one whom we have pierced. And now he stands, he sits at the right hand of you, God, our Almighty Father. But here we see how he got there. The humiliation before the exaltation. And Father, let us not so quickly scan through these familiar verses. Let not the familiarity of the bloody cross rob us of any of the truth of your cleansing work in our lives. Father, our prayer, and we know your heart, is that any who would join with us in looking at the word of God this morning, who has not yet looked upon this son of yours in faith, receiving saving grace, then this morning we pray they would come to know Jesus not merely as a suffering man, but as a victorious Savior and their Savior. Father, He has become for us our Savior and He is showing us the way to live. And so, may these saving truths become living truths for us who have clung to Him to be our Savior. We commit this time to You. We ask that You would guard the moments from distraction and awaken our hearts to receive this wonderful word of life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has now entered fully into the crucible for which he had come. He had said over and over that he had come to die. He had come not to be served, but to serve and to become a, a ransom for many. Over and over he had told us and told the people, that he had come to die, 
And now he is entering into that crucible. No longer coddled in the manger of Bethlehem. No longer swaddled in clothes there. No longer surrounded by his disciples at a festal table. No longer in glory beside the Father as he had enjoyed an eternity past. But now Jesus is alone. And he is suffering. And his suffering is filling up. Here we begin to see exactly what Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 was foretelling us about salvation, the salvation that God would bring to us. The salvation that God would bring to us by the means of the suffering and death of the second person of the Trinity, God's very Son, Jesus Christ. Matthew fills up this part of your page in the Scriptures with 15 verbs. Fifteen verbs in five verses. I'd like for you to follow along as I read it again, and I'm going to emphasize the verbs. Beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I want you to notice something about these verbs. None of them are what Jesus is doing. None of these 15 verbs are what Jesus is doing. Now we have been tracking with Matthew 27 chapters and we see time after time again how Matthew is showing us this king has come into this world And he is declaring a kingdom and he is bringing citizens into this kingdom. And verb after verb after verb has resonated and has been written and inscribed in our scriptures. But here we come to verse number 27 and here we find Matthew turns the subject and the verb around to be what man is doing to God. All of them, all of these verbs are being done by someone, the soldiers, to Jesus. And there seems to be a building up, a swelling, even though in ironic, in irony, torture and mockery. And then there is a clear break to prepare Jesus to head towards crucifixion. We see in this passage words, weapons, props, scepter, crown, clothing, spittle. Gestures, collaboration among the battalion of soldiers. And this is clearly a break from the narrative. Just moments before, Jesus was standing before Pilate whole and he was not suffering physically yet. Now Matthew uses 15 verbs to show the extent of torture that Jesus endured before being led away to the cross. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. The Bible says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. For he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him, but with his stripes. With his stripes, we are healed. Notice that we cannot separate out this time of torture of Jesus Christ from his death. However, we begin to see the signs that he is going to go all the way through with what he had said he would do. Notice the wounds that Isaiah points to. Each of them become deadly, pierced, crushed. Some versions of the scripture say bruised, wounds. Some translations say stripes. But when Christ laid out his body like a lamb would be laid out on the altar, life began to pour out of him. And it was mercy for us. I want you to know that there is a reason why the Christian hymns sing so much about the blood. We do not have a bloodless Christianity, we have a bloody Savior. And this blood imagery and this blood truth is meant to be horrific to us. It is meant to awaken our senses, to, to, to capture us, to awaken us out of the numbness uh, of our hearts, to, to create a sensitive and tender heart towards glorifying our Savior, listen, and hating sin. And so may the blood of Jesus never be excluded from the, the tradition of our Christian hymns. And a sign, by the way, of a church that has long departed the preaching of the gospel is that their songs are bloodless. It isn't fun to sing about a bloody Savior. It doesn't make us feel good about ourselves, does it? To think that someone's blood would have to be the ransom for our sins. That that we would be that bad, that lost, that someone would have to drain their blood to redeem us from our sin. May it, never, may it never be said from the teaching and the people of Providence that we have a bloodless Savior. It is meant to be horrifying. It's meant to be canonized in our worship. It is meant to be inscribed on our consciences and really it is meant to be applied to our hearts and we are to live under the blood of Jesus Christ in every moment of our life. It is therefore the blood of Jesus Christ that not only cleanses us from our sins, but trains us and teaches us of a tenderness and a cleansing work and a sanctifying work to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have seen the endurance that Jesus has had during the abuses of abandonment of everyone around him. We have seen the endurance of Christ through the accusations from the religious leaders and the interrogations of that late night and early morning of the five trials that Jesus endured, some before King Herod and Pilate. But now we see that Jesus' endurance will go to the next length of submitting himself to deadly torture. And it is this silent patience that Matthew demonstrates to us that is working and offering to God what is necessary for our cleansing and forgiveness of sin. This morning we're going to be looking at two truths in this passage. And the first one is this. The same patience that endured suffering for our saving 
is the same patience that works towards our sanctifying. Do you know that every injury to Christ was filling up for our suffering and damnation? Every injury to Christ was filling up for our suffering and damnation. There were men who did not survive this level of torture, this level of persecution. Some would die underneath these means. Some had died before they had reached the cross. Jesus' torture and death functioned on our behalf. But you know, Jesus was suffering from every single angle. Jesus obviously was suffering physically, but He was suffering emotionally. And certainly we know with our spiritual, the lens of our spiritual eyes, we certainly know that Jesus is suffering spiritually. And He is sovereign over His suffering, even as He is silent in it. Don't mistake His silence for a lack of control. Don't mistake His silence for, for lack of sovereignty. Jesus is strong in His suffering even though His strength is leaving His body. And this is one of the ironies of the moment. By the way, Matthew will show us irony after irony, just even in this passage. But Jesus is strong, even though He is becoming weak. You see, Adam's race stood condemned, you and I. We always had been condemned. We even entered into this world condemned. And it would take a dramatic work of God to undo the curse of sin that what the curse of sin had wrought upon mankind and really all the universe. It would take a dramatic work of God to do this. There would need to be a second Adam who would set things right. But it's difficult for some to believe that God would subject Himself to such drastic humiliation, suffering, and even death. It's difficult for some to believe that God would do this. And by, by the way, this ought to be a centering of our hearts as we sometimes are tempted to believe that God is uncaring. So often we, in our, in our, our sorrow and in our self-pity and in the despair and, and discouragement of, of life's circumstances, we so often lie to ourselves that God does not care, that He doesn't know what it is like to suffer. The fact remains that we need to preach this text to ourselves, preach this theology and this Christology to ourselves that God did subject Himself to such drastic humiliation, suffering, and even death. This isn't just a man. This is God. But to understand this is critical to believing upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Everything hinges upon the vicarious atonement of God Himself on our behalf. When Matthew is writing this book, you know that he didn't write this book the days following the resurrection. It took 20 to 30 years for Matthew to write until Matthew would write this book. So a church has begun in Jerusalem. Churches have begun around Asia Minor as the Apostle Paul has been ministering and planting churches in Antioch and, and Bithynia and Smyrna and, and Philippi and Colossae and Ephesus and so on. And Matthew is writing specifically to Jews, primarily in the Jerusalem area, but really a, a Hebrew people. And by the time he's writing this, heresy had begun to enter into the Christian church, these early churches, even though young and even though the blood of Christ and the story of Christ was so fresh, and some even that were populating these churches and worshiping God were some of the ones who perhaps had even witnessed miracles and they themselves were blind and now saw. Matthew is writing to them. 
But already in these people's churches, these ones who had encountered Jesus for themselves and so on, the heresy had already entered in. A heresy directly related to an attack upon the deity of Jesus Christ. That is, that Jesus was truly God. And it had infected, successfully infected, many a teacher, many a religious leader in these churches, and many a learner. In fact, so so drastically so that some in these early churches had begun to believe that Jesus did not actually have a human body. Follow on this. Others had said that when it came to Jesus' torture and death, that Jesus actually left the body and someone else was in his place. This, by the way, is what John is preaching against in his short letter of five books in the epistle of 1 John. He says, those things that we saw and we heard and we even touched, we declare unto you, this was Jesus, the Son of God. We know what it was like. We were there. And he went all the way to the cross, this one whom we loved and we, and we cherished and, and we betrayed and yet we worshipped. He went all the way to the cross. It, it remains Jesus all the way through. The Muslims teach that Jesus did not die on the cross. Did you know that? But that someone else actually died in his place. That it's a misrepresentation of history that Jesus died a natural death. And the reason why the Muslims believe this is actually the same reason why Gnostics, those who have a hard time believing that God would die on the cross in that sense, they have that same type of, of reasoning as that is. They, they believe it's a logical fallacy. They're unwilling to reconcile that, that God is not only infinite, but He's omnipotent. They say that, that this infinite God cannot become finite. And we too, it hurts our minds to think, how could an infinite God become finite? But we also know that God is more than just infinite. He's, he's infinite in power, not only in person and presence. He's infinite in power. He's omnipotent. And so He can do anything. And the incarnation of Christ may appear to, by some to be a logical fallacy. And, and we do have to stumble over this, by the way. In our human wisdom, you and I have to reckon unto this. Even as Christians, we have to answer unto this and confess this and defend this, this doctrine of Christ that God would become fully man and yet be fully God. But you know, God doesn't seek our permission, nor does He limit ourselves to our understanding. He doesn't limit Himself to our understanding. God doesn't come to you for His counselor and say, how does this sound if I don't work out this thing? And Will this be easier to believe? Will you understand this? Is this? Should I work out the redemption plan this way instead of this so that it's easier? No, we have to fall upon this. Thankfully, God is beyond our wisdom. For who has been his counselor, Romans 11, 33 says. For God has gone beyond our understanding and in synchronistic coordination with his own perfect nature to deliver to us a salvation through his merciful means. God is mercifully beyond our understanding. And wonderfully beyond our understanding. But yet, in all of the beyondness, in, in all of the, the complexity of God, in all of the greatness and grandeur of His counsel, in all of the magnificence of His sovereignty, 
and, and the, the things that perplex us. The complex has become simple. Here is God. What do you do with this man who lays his back bare before Pilate saying he is God? What are you going to do with the testimony of this man? And the complex becomes simple. The gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is foolishness to those who are perishing because they refuse to entrust themselves to God, to the God who they cannot fully comprehend. And so here Matthew gives us a seven-step description of what the soldiers did to Jesus. And the fact is, as we look at Jesus here receiving the wrath of God and the rejection of man and providing himself to be the lamb for our sin, the reality is that we deserve more than what we see Jesus receive physically here. Let me say that again. You and I deserve more than what you read in verses 27 to 31 for our sin. That's offensive to me even as I say it because I want to, I want to defend myself against that statement. Does that, how many of you felt like you were just defending yourself in that moment? Do I really? No hands. Okay, just me. I'll preach. <laughs> That's right. I know you're all really, really deferring, but, but uh, our sin is horrific. The reality is that we deserve more than what we see Jesus receive physically. And that is why suffering in hell is for eternity. Spiritual suffering. Jesus' separation of fellowship with the Father was suffering on a level that is not pictured in our Bibles through this means here. And it's not easy for us to understand. Could we even understand what it is for the Trinity to suffer, the second person of the Trinity to suffer, okay, under the first person of the Trinity's wrath? When we know that God loves himself and loves his Son to an infinite degree. And then to think that because of his suffering that all who will enter into faith in Jesus Christ will be loved like God loves his son. Like in John 17 where Jesus says, I commit them to you for you to love them as you have loved me. So believer here today, you have entered into the love that God has for his son. He loves you. With that, with that degree. So when we see the sun here, bent over and tortured, it is not easy for us to understand or easy for us to see, but beyond the torture of what is being shown in verses 27 to 31 is a spiritual torture that is being laid upon Jesus Christ, not by uh, the soldiers, but by the loving Father. 
It wasn't until Jesus saw the back of the father of saw the back of the father on the cross that the ultimate suffering came upon him. This is the nature and cost of sin. Sin is so deadly, and it is far more deadly spiritually than it is physically. And so often we tune ourselves into the physical or the material, maybe even the relational cost of our sin. And we calculate, we pre-calculate, sometimes even presume the effect of our sin, the effect of our words, the effect of our motives, the effect of our behavior, our actions upon someone else or even upon ourselves. And we measure out, can, are we willing to pay the consequences? The fact is that the physical result of our sin pales in comparison to the spiritual account, or the spiritual reckoning of our sin. If we are merely afraid only of the physical results or consequences of our sin, we have not yet known what it is to be awakened spiritually unto the reality that our, the spiritual cost of our sin is separation from God and brokenness in fellowship with Him. And so the physical suffering of Christ is meant to graphically display the agony that sin both causes and leads us to. The very last words of last week's message on Barabbas, we closed with the thought that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are very brief in their description of suffering. And we had mentioned that it was purposeful that they didn't linger long or use a lot of descriptions to slow down the agony, the anguish, and the exact parts of pain and suffering that Jesus endured. Because, we said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want us to know this was not just merely a physical suffering, that there was a spiritual weight to it, that there was something effectual happening even on a spiritual level. So today we are not in contradiction of that by bringing about these verses. We're not, Matthew's not contradicting this. We're not in contradiction of that truth. But in reality, what we're seeing here is as, as believers in Jesus Christ is that he was truly God suffering, listen, and truly man suffering on our behalf. That God was not untouched by pain. To the extreme, to the eternal, to the infinite degree, God was touched by pain. And so the physical suffering of Christ is meant to graphically display the agony that sin both causes us and leads us to. Sin is deadly. It is even more deadly to us than whips than rods, than thorns, than nails, and even physical death itself. Sin is more deadly than all of those. Are you aware of that? Are you in tune with that? Do we believe that? How would we ever escape such a punishment if it wouldn't be that Jesus would bear about on himself the torture and the agony, not only of physical suffering, but of spiritual suffering? But it is only through the suffering of Jesus Christ that a people can be sanctified, cleansed, and set apart for God's glory. The second truth we see in this passage is that every sin was calculated in the suffering and death of Christ. Every sin was calculated in the suffering and death of Christ. 
every type of sinner was accounted for. It appears that given the variety of responses and types of rejection of Jesus Christ on that day, that there is a representation of every type of person who could have an encounter with Jesus. Listen to this, you who today are weary and wondering, will Christ forgive me? Can Christ forgive me? Does Christ know the extent of my doubts? Does He know the extent of my anxiety? Does He know the extent of my betrayal? Does He know the extent of the darkness that resides deep within that I've never shared with anybody? Can He truly save me? Can He go that far with me? Will He go the length with me and cleanse me from from my sin? If you're here today and asking that question, the good news is that Jesus knew and He knows every doubt. And He knows every question. And He knows every critique. And He knows every part of cynicism. And He knows every betrayal. And He knows every foolish thought and deed. And He knows every part of ignorance. And He still goes to the cross knowing that you and I are like that. None of our sins surprises our Savior. You see, when Jesus put His face towards Jerusalem as we saw in Matthew 26 and told His disciples, I must needs be to go to Jerusalem and there I will be delivered over to the leaders and the teachers of the law. And they will crucify Me and I will rise the third day. When He set His face towards Jerusalem, listen, He set His face towards you and I knowing with God's mind every sin that you and I would commit and every failure to accomplish righteousness. Every type of sin. Every doubt of doubts. Every willful deed. Every flicker of rebellious thought. Every curse word that we didn't say, that we wish we could have said. He still offers Himself in our place. The good news is that as we watch Jesus heading towards the cross, we realize that no one is too sinful. No one is too far away. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving mercy. No sin is too dark. No sin is too devastating. No sin is too damning that the power of the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse it and make it clear in the accounting of God. Jesus paid it all. Jesus is more powerful than sin and death. And this is at the very heart of the Christian message and belief. Jesus is stronger than sin. And Jesus is able to save from death. O death, where is your victory? Isaiah 118, 
God begins as he unfolds his appeal to Israel through the magnificent book, through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. As he begins to speak through Isaiah to Israel, a people who at this time were worshipping idols and bringing sacrifices to the temple looking like they were worshipping God and mocking him. A people who God had made a covenant with and like a wife were committing adultery over and over again. God comes to Israel through the prophet Isaiah and says this in Isaiah 1.18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now I want you to know that no preacher has ever said this. No priest can do this. But this is the word of the Lord. I have no power and no man on earth has power to say that of you or me. Your sins are forgiven. But come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. This is the Lord's saying to you. So I'm repeating to you, and any faithful witness and messenger of the gospel just repeats to you, not his own authority that your sins can be forgiven, but, but we've all had come to the realization that God is the one who says, I will forgive you of our sins. And so it is left to us to believe upon him, to entrust ourselves to that amazingly unreconcilable truth. It doesn't fit together. It doesn't make sense. God says, you must believe. The intentionality of Christ to deliver himself up was with determination to love us no matter the cost. Matthew is showing us here what Christ had been foretelling all of this, that Jesus had predicted The things that Jesus had predicted were coming to pass and ultimately they were underneath his sovereign control. Jesus is sovereign over his own suffering and death. But included in this image, Matthew, remember, Matthew's book is about Jesus the King. He began really in the first verse, cluing us in that he would be the son of David. That is, it's going to be this king. He's going to be born and he's, he's, he's a rightful heir of the throne. He's a son of David. He's a king. And so we're going to read the story of a king. And now we come against the end of, up against the end of Jesus' life. And here we see this final, final uh, announcement. Hail Jesus, King of the Jews, the soldiers mock. And Matthew wants us to see. This is what the world thought of Jesus. The Magi, Matthew says in chapter 2, had come. The kings from the east had come and worshipped Jesus. Jesus had stood before at least two Herods and a kingly man like Pilate. 
And now Jesus would be announced king, but it wouldn't be from the lips of those who are believing upon him. It would be in blasphemy. This is the wretchedness and the lostness of our hearts. Matthew is showing us here that Jesus is finally being recognized as king from the most unlikely people, but in a contradictory way. For the soldiers, for the soldiers mocking Jesus, likely these soldiers are mocking him in ignorance. Likely they were his own battalion of about 600 soldiers, probably of Syrian, from the Syrian region. They had probably not had been around Jesus' teaching. For them it was the sin of ignorance. They were not necessarily in knowing rejection. But Matthew is bringing us to this point, like, like it's, it's sort of starting to, the music is getting more intense if there's a score to the movie here on Matthew's pages. Matthew is showing us the increase, the culmination of man's wickedness when it comes to this point. And this is his unique viewpoint here. Other Gospels will have other emphasis. For example, John in 18 and 19 doesn't show us so much of the wickedness of the heart of man. He shows us another perspective, another camera angle, the love of Jesus. But Matthew is showing us here the extent of the wickedness of man and in contrast to the greatness of Jesus Christ. And there's four different types of people that Matthew is showing us here in this passage. And these four different types of people, we could say, appear to demonstrate or represent four types of people who need Jesus. Number one, he's showing us, as we had mentioned before, the ignorant, that is the soldiers. They hadn't heard of Jesus preaching of the kingdom. They hadn't heard the parables. They hadn't received the miracles, the signs of the miracles. They were just ignorant. And they needed to hear about a Savior who had come, who was dying for them. They were ignorant. And there are many in this world who live in ignorance and they are lost in their sin and need to hear of the good news that a Savior has died for them. And they're like the soldiers. There's another type of lost person that Matthew records here and maybe this resonates in your heart this morning as you hear the Word of God and that is that they are the knowing wicked. Look in verse number 38 in Matthew 27. Look in verse number 38. I'm sorry, verse... Um, Verse 28. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm all over the place. Verse 25. And the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. They're the knowing wicked. They know what they're doing. We also see the, the fickle. The fickle crowd. Don't give us Barabbas. Give us, don't give us Jesus, give us Barabbas. We also see the religious wicked. The priests and the teachers of the law chant. Verse number 20. They persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas. The religious wicked. And so we have the ignorant, 
those who know nothing about the claims of Jesus. We have the knowing wicked, those who know what they're doing and still do it. We have the fickle, the foolish, tossed about by whatever, believing whatever they're taught here on the radio or on TV or here in culture. And we have the religious wicked that say, I want my religion, but I don't want Jesus. The fact is that Jesus will die for no matter what type of sinner you are. He knew. He knew going into Jerusalem these four types of sinners could be reconciled by the means of his blood. One of the most effective and simple costume changes that you can do if you're putting on a play, putting on a skit or something, is to just kind of take a hat and put it on and throw throw another hat off and just keep switching hats and maybe even feel like that as a parent or someone who's busy in life right now where you're wearing multiple hats at a time. We talk about that, that we're a person of many hats. Matthew Bridges in the middle of the 19th century in 1851 was a, was a, uh, a priest in England. And as he began to ponder the, the picture of Matthew here of this suffering king, and as he began to study the scriptures and recognize that Jesus was king of kings, he put his pen to work and he began to write out the words of a song that we sing often, especially as we begin our worship time. And it's known to us, although it's had several iterations of titles, it's known to us as crown him with many crowns. And he recognized that Jesus was Lord of all and that he was crowned, he was crowned with many crowns because he was crowned for many reasons. He was crowned for many things. And as he wrote this, what is, was in Matthew's mind was this idea that uh, he was wearing a crown for each different aspect of what he had accomplished. And so he wrote the first verse to sound like this, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne, hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. But Bridges was mindful that this crown would have to come through humiliation before it would receive exaltation. And this is how Matthew is showing us the path of Jesus' exaltation, because remember, Matthew's purpose for his book is to show us that Jesus truly is king, but right here, he doesn't look like a king. And it frustrates us when we look at the irony of the blasphemy and the mockery of the soldiers. Oh, will someone just actually say it? He truly is king? And Matthew brings us to this climax of thought in his book, and he says, we've come all this way, 27 chapters, and now finally someone says, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews, and it's not even the right people, and they're not even truly meaning it. Oh, what is the heartache of Matthew as he writes this? But the story isn't over, and it isn't over in Bridges' song either. So he continues into the third, the third verse, and he explains what it is that 
that qualifies Jesus to wear the crown, humiliation before exaltation. And so he writes, Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds, yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angels in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends their burning eye at mysteries so bright. And we have approached this text humbly this morning, recognizing that we too can barely behold this sight. For you and I should have been And we could have been, and we were, in Matthew 27, 27 to 31. We were Barabbas. We were Peter. We were Pilate. We were Judas. We were the soldiers. We were the crowd. We were the priests and the teachers of the law. We were all of them. And Jesus knew. And would allow 15 verbs to be done to him. Until he died. So that we. So that we could live. How deadly do you view your sin in your own life? How wicked do you view others in comparison to yourself? Which type of sinner are you? One that's never heard the good news just laid out for you that if you would trust in Jesus Christ to be the Savior of your souls, that he would cleanse you and forgive you of your guilt and your sin. And that turning away from your sin, you could trust in him and have everlasting life. This morning, hearing that, you no longer can say that you're ignorant. But maybe you're knowing and you know and you have heard of this. But maybe it's pride or maybe it's procrastination. Maybe it's thinking about what others might think of you if you would say, finally, you're not truly a child of God. Or maybe you have become gullible and You've believed many things. This morning God says to you, Thus says the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be washed whiter than snow. Not any preacher, not any religion, not any book can tell you and make, give you that promise and fulfill on it, but thus says the Lord and only He can. Or maybe you're religious and you've been trusting on the props of what you've done. You've been holding on to reasons why you could tell God someday and you've been telling Him already that you're okay, you're not that bad, that that it's going to end up okay in the end and, and you have all these reasons why you believe that you're a good person, you're not that bad and you know all the things you haven't done and you know a good bit of the things that you have done and so you believe that God just ought to be 
very thankful to have you. Well, the fact is that religion is bankrupt to save anyone. It's only the person, Jesus Christ, that can forgive sins. And in Hebrews chapter 10, and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, God says about his son Jesus, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God exalts his son. He loves to do so. And he would like to exalt us with his son by saving us and bringing us as sons to glory. Let's pray.